Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings. Today is November the 29th. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer and welcome to our podcast. Yesterday, the S&P 500 index fell 1.5%, its largest daily decline in a month, as investors worried if protests in China mean iPhones and other things might not get made. And two of the 12 voting members of the Federal Open Markets Committee made hawkish comments. St. Louis President James Bullard said, We want to get this inflation under control much sooner than in the 1970s. He said that means the Fed funds rate needs to go from the 4% where it is now to at least five to five and a quarter percent. And he said it would have to stay there all through 2023 and into 2024 to get inflation down. For markets, 5% on the Fed funds rate isn't such a big deal. For a couple of months now, futures have already been pricing it at around 5% by next May or June. What markets have a harder time with is the comment that rates will need to stay so high even into 2024 because futures show the Fed funds rate heading back down next summer to just 4.4% by January 2024, not 5.25% like Mr. Bullard says. Then the other voting member who spoke was New York Fed President John Williams, and he concurred with Mr. Bullard that he thinks the Fed will keep rates at peak levels through at least next year because, and to quote him directly, Overall demand for labor and services still far exceeds available supply, resulting in broad-based inflation, which will take longer to bring back down. And he said, I hope a recession is not the case, but that's clearly a risk out there given all the uncertainty in the global economic outlook. So stocks took it on the chin, but interestingly, neither treasuries nor the Fed fund futures rose after those comments. Maybe they have their own sense that the Federal Reserve officials are human beings like everyone else, and no human being is right all the time. As a case in point, a year ago, the 19 Fed officials who contribute a dot to the Fed's dot plot forecast on average that the Fed funds rate would be at 0.9% by the end of this year. Well, it's 4% now, so they were way off the mark. Their current forecast as of the September dot plot was for 4.6% by the end of next year, what's to say they won't be way off the mark then too, if inflation comes down more quickly than they say it will? Well, turning to markets, November's been a great month. What's interesting among the major indices is who the leader is. It's not the NASDAQ like it was in the previous decade, and it's not the S&P either. It's the good old-fashioned Dow Jones Industrial Average, otherwise known as the Dow, And because everyone's so fixated on the S&P and the NASDAQ, hardly anyone noticed what the Dow's been doing. It actually bottomed two weeks before the S&P, way back on the 30th of September. And since then, it's up 18%. That's just two percentage points away from becoming a bull market. And when we peek beneath the hood of the Dow, we can see it's the share prices of companies that would do well when the economy is doing well that have done well over the last month, the Boeings, the Caterpillars, the Walgreens of the world. That seems at odds with economic forecasts. For example, the Philadelphia Fed Survey of Professional Forecasters is the oldest survey of economic forecasts in the United States. 
In its fourth quarter reading, the 38 economists surveyed substantially increased their probability of a recession over the next 12 months from an average of 34% in the third quarter to 43%, which isn't actually that far away from our own estimate. Our economist David Cole sees the chance of a recession in the U.S. at between 35 to 45% over the next 12 months. Now, admittedly, both are still below 50%, but still, 43% for the Philadelphia Fed survey chance of a recession over the next 12 months is the highest it's ever been since that survey was started in 1968. And those economists on average expect GDP growth of just 0.7% next year. Three months ago, they were looking for 1.3%. So that's quite a big drop. Does Fed Chairman Jerome Powell really want to keep raising rates into an economy like that? He must be haunted by the ghost of Arthur Burns, who was chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1970 to 1978. Burns cut the Fed funds rate from 10% to 5% in 1970, but he had to raise it again from 1972 to 1974 when inflation suddenly went from 3% to 12%. And he went down in history as one of the worst chairs of the Federal Reserve, the man who wasn't strong enough to keep rates high to bring inflation down and pursued a kind of stop-go policy that created confusion and did little to control inflation. That's a little unfair, by the way, what with the pressure he was getting from President Nixon to expand monetary policy, government wage and price controls that backfired, and the end of the Bretton Woods system, and the 1973 oil crisis. Arthur Burns had a lot on his plate. And Jerome Powell has a lot on his plate today, too, because inflation hasn't come down yet. It's still at 7.7% as of the October reading. And high interest rates can have consequences, especially after so many years of low rates. The economy's one consideration. There's also financial markets. Volatility in treasuries is more than twice its average of the last five years, and large blocks of government debt are increasingly hard to trade. The issue's starting to be noticed. On Friday last week, Singapore's central bank gave a somewhat unusual warning when it said, I'm going to quote it now, Tighter financial conditions and highly volatile markets could give rise to liquidity imbalances that central banks and fiscal authorities need to adequately address to avoid precipitating a disorderly liquidation of assets. End of quote. So if we put ourselves in Jerome Powell's shoes, we can understand why he's doing what he's doing. He can't declare victory on inflation when it's still over 7%. But there are signs the economy might be heading into a recession, there are signs of dysfunction in the financial markets, so the best he can do is kind of walk down the middle and say that they'll raise rates, but at a slower pace than before. What's been helpful is the dollar. It's down 4.5% so far this month. That puts it on track to be the biggest down month for the dollar since May of 2009. And that's because the 10-year Treasury yield, which was 4.3% a few weeks ago, is down at 37 now. So there's definitely a sense in the currency market, in the bond market, contrary to what James Bullard and John Williams are saying, that inflation has peaked. And that means the November Consumer Price Index inflation reading will be hugely important. It comes out the day before the Federal Reserve's next meeting on December 14th. Everyone will pile into the market if it's a good number. But if it's a bad number, like let's say it gets back to 8%, then there won't be any buyers left and the sell-off will be big. I'll finish off with what's happening in China. You may recall that several of the investment banks upgraded China to an overweight a couple of weeks ago on the back of what they called three big pivots. 
a rescue plan for the property sector, an exit ramp from COVID, and improved ties with the United States. At the time, we acknowledged those were all good things in principle, but we were more reserved. And one of the reasons why was because we remembered that the market had been disappointed before, after Vice Premier Liu He gave a speech back in March. That got everybody just as excited. There was a lot of publicity at the time. People seem to have forgotten about it now. He said the government was going to take concrete actions to help the economy and that a new approach would be taken to support the property sector and that market-friendly policies were going to be introduced. So Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index jumped 20% in two weeks. But then none of what was in the speech actually happened. And so the rally fizzled out. This time, the Hang Seng Index rose 25% from the end of October to November 15th. Since then, it's down by 4%. What's next? Well, I'm sure you've seen the images on television of protests over the weekend. The tipping point appears to have been the so-called 20 Measures for Optimizing Epidemic Response that came out a couple of weeks ago, and they were supposed to make things easier for a society that's still adhering to zero COVID, but they had the opposite effect. The reason, according to Professor Victor Schur at the University of California, San Diego, is execution. The measures were left to be enforced by neighborhood committees. Those are usually staffed by only a few officials. They're massively under-equipped to manage communities with thousands of residents. So Professor Schur said, and I'll quote him, under the 20 measures, they're supposed to police these enormous neighborhoods to ensure that households with exposure do not leave their homes. This is an impossible task and has led to extreme measures like bolting people's doors shut, end of quote. Well, apparently the World Cup was also a catalyst because Chinese people could see everybody in the stands watching the games, wasn't wearing a mask, mingling, having a good time. The images of the people in the stands aren't being broadcast on Chinese television anymore. Professor Perry Link at the University of California, Riverside, said, A crackdown is predictable. I think it will happen. But it's also possible these protests could result in the government letting it go. If COVID spreads so much that it just can't be contained anymore, and the difference between now and the last surge in April is that back then only 100 cities were seeing daily new cases. Over 300 cities are reporting them today, and there's some conjecture how accurate the numbers of daily confirmed cases is today compared to before, because apparently a lot of people are reluctant to go get tested now. So for now, there's a lot of contradictions. After the deadly apartment fire and protests in Urumuchi, the government there declared it had achieved zero COVID and would reduce the lockdown measures. But at the same time, the main face behind zero COVID, Vice Premier Sun Chunlan, when she visited Chongqing on Friday, told the authorities there to wipe out COVID with greater precision and efficiency. So we just don't know what's going to happen. I'd also say that as much as it's clear that a lot of people are fed up with zero COVID, on the other hand, after three years of government messaging that this is an extremely dangerous virus, there's also a large percent of people who are terrified of COVID and don't want to open up. But to end on a happy note, I'll leave you with something interesting that you can see for yourself if you look up the Bloomberg story titled, Super Rare Signal Suggests Hong Kong Stock Market Has Hit Rock Bottom. The Relative Strength Index measures the speed and change of prices, and by rule of thumb, it's considered overbought at 70 and oversold at 30. On a 14-month basis, the Hang Seng Index's Relative Strength Index recently dropped below 30 and then surged back above 30 again. That's supposed to mean the price is about to make a big turn. 
It only happened once before in the Hang Seng Index's history, during the riots of 1967, when the Cultural Revolution was spilling into Hong Kong. And you'll see a chart in that article that a very similar shift in 2009 started the big bull market in the United States. I'll just say the title of the article again so you can search for it. Super Rare Signal Suggests Hong Kong Stock Market Has Hit Rock Bottom. Well, we'll only know in retrospect if that's true. Could be the best time to buy Hong Kong stocks. It really all depends what they decide to do with their COVID policy. These are turbulent times for China, but you know the old saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. It might be this time too. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I'll speak with you again next week. And until then, goodbye. Wealth Insights is a podcast series where Julius Baer experts discuss topics from a wealth management perspective. Whether it's starting a business, preparing for retirement, or transferring wealth to the next generation, our experts provide answers to the relevant questions. Available now on all good platforms, search for Wealth Insights on your favourite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.